Good morning. You know, I want to wish a belated happy birthday today to Stanley Lieber. Um, I actually thought his birthday was today as I was looking at my, preparing my sermon, and I realized that it actually was last week, so I missed it. So it's the 28th of December with Stanley Lieber's birthday. Fascinating story. You know, his parents were um, Romanians, and they actually, they actually were Jewish Romanians, and they were forced out of their homeland. And so he was, you know, he's 92. So this was 1922. He was born in the United States in New York City, but his parents were from Romania. And they didn't have any money. His dad tried to work as a dress cutter and didn't get going very far, and all of a sudden, Great Depression set in. So they didn't have much what they could do, and Stanley was poor. I mean, really poor. They lived in the Bronx, and they lived in an apartment where they had two, two rooms, basically. And in the bedroom, he slept there with his brother, who was nine years younger than him. And in the other room, his parents had a fold-out couch, and that's where they slept. But he was a dreamer. He loved to watch the movies. Earl Flynn was popular in those days, and he dreamed that one day he would maybe write something himself. He'd come up with some great adventure. In fact, his dream, he was a good writer in high school, was to write the great American novel. That's what he was going to do. But he had to make money to put food on the table for his family. So he had all sorts of weird jobs. Some of his first writing jobs was he wrote obituaries for um, a, a, a service. And he wrote press releases for um, National Tuberculosis Center. And he would deliver lunch for a pharmacy at the Rockefeller Center. And he would usher people in to the theater, to different theaters in Broadway. And he would sell subscriptions to the New York Herald Tribune, whatever he could do to make ends meet. When he was 16 and a half, he was bright. He graduated from high school in 1939. And his uncle got him a job, his first full-time job, working for timely comic books. It was, you know, comic books were new. And so what he would do is he would fill the ink wells, and he would deliver lunch, and he would proofread what they wrote. And then uh, when he was done with that, he would erase the pencil marks from the drawings. That's what he did. In 1941, he got an opportunity to be a text writer. You know, that means that, you know those little bubbles that they have coming off of the guy's heads? You have to write those in. That's the text. They called him a text writer. That's before we had texting as we know it today. So he, he didn't text it the way we do, but he texted in there, and he, and, he, and he wrote it in for one comic book. It was the third Captain America. And they said, now you've got to write your name down. But he didn't want to write his name down because he was saving his name for the great American novel. And so he quickly came up with a pseudonym, pseudonym using his first name, Stanley, and he signed it Stan Lee. You know who I'm talking about now? Many of you know who Stan Lee is, probably the most successful comic book writer and most successful comic book businessman in history who just started this whole big movement. If you don't know who he is, Timely Comics became Marvel Comics, and he was a creator, a co-creator of such popular characters as Spider-Man, um, the Fantastic Four, Iron Man, Thor, the X-Men, and others. Tell me. What would we do without Stanley? <laughs> uh, incredible story. Who would have believed that this very poor Jewish boy, you know, from the ghettos, would come out of that background to become such a famous man and start such a big, you know, outreach, a big movement, really, of that time? 
But even greater was the story of the baby born in a manger in Bethlehem. Who would have ever believed that he would become the greatest man who ever lived and the savior of the world and usher in the greatest movement for good that the world has ever known? Isn't that amazing? You know, we look at people, we get so caught up in famous people, but then we stop and think of how great Jesus really is. And what's fascinating about that is just as we have these historical records of people's lives, we actually have a historical record of Jesus' life. We actually have four of them in what's called the Gospels. But we've been looking at the first two chapters of Luke going through a series called Witness, and we've actually looked at the historical details and records about Jesus' early childhood, about those who even before him were talking and predicting about him coming, leading up to the point where he was born as we celebrated at Christmas. And today, we're going to start a new series, and we're going to call it Salvation Has Come. Because at Jesus' birth, salvation is now being brought in a very public way to the world. And as we start that today, we're going to look at the one account that we have of Jesus in his childhood. Did you know that? There's only one account of him in his childhood. We have accounts of him as a baby, but one account of him in his childhood. And it's the first place recorded where Jesus is recorded as having a message for us. And so we're going to take a look at it today, and I think we're going to find it absolutely fascinating in terms of uh, what we learn about Jesus and him being a supernatural person, but also because we're always looking at his life and trying to follow his example, it's going to be very instructive for us personally. So could you follow with me today as we turn to Luke chapter 2 and look at verses 41 through 52 and learn a little bit about Jesus as a little boy. Starting at verse 41 of uh, Luke chapter 2, it reads, Every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the feast according to the custom. After the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, Why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. What were some signs of Jesus' divinity in his boyhood? First thing we see is that he spent extra time in the temple in verses 41 through 47. Um, His parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. And we know from the Old Testament, from Exodus and Deuteronomy, that every Jewish man was supposed to go to the three festivals that they had every year. So the big celebrations, big holidays we have in America are Thanksgiving and Christmas and... Easter, okay? Well, the three big ones that they had were Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. But 
because of all the wars, the Israelites or the Jewish people at that point had been spread so far and near that they began to loosen up on these restrictions and these, um, these commandments. And they said, you know, you don't have to come to all three festivals if you can't. Try to do that, but at least go to one. Come to one festival, and that would be the Passover. And there's a movie right now out on that, right? What's the movie called? The Exodus, right? And I've heard it's not particularly accurate on most accounts, but they get one thing right, and that is that Israel came out of Egypt and they started the nation of Israel. And it kind of became their Independence Day celebration. So Passover was a really big celebration. It was the biggest of the three, and you, it was good to go to any of them that you could, but you had to be at Passover if you possibly could. You, you needed to be there. And so Joseph, Jesus' stepfather, would have to go there. And usually, you know, not always, but you would try to take family with you. You know, maybe not every year, but you try to take your family with you. The fact that your wife would come, as in Mary's case, showed that she was probably a pretty devout person to be able to do that. And it was a fun occasion. They would come with the whole family, an extended family, which would often be a village because they were all interrelated. And then they would go on down to Jerusalem and celebrate this time. It says that when the festival was, was um, the days of the festival were completed here, but it really says... And it's probably better. Let's see how they exactly say it. It says, and verse 43, after the feast was over, probably in the Greek is better translated after the days were completed, meaning several days. So you were really only obligated to go to two days, but there were seven days, and they were there for all seven days. Now catch this with Joseph and Mary. What we're saying here is that he was the only one that had to go, but the whole family apparently went every year. And they didn't just go for the two days, they would stay for all seven days. So this was a big deal in their lives. Jesus is 12 years of age. That's important because the next year he turns 13 and he's supposed to become a son of the covenant, which is very similar to what we call today, what? Anybody know? Want to take a stab at it? Bar Mitzvah. Ever been to a Bar Mitzvah? Uh, Maybe some of us have been. Yeah, my daughter's been to Bar Mitzvah. Um, And so, but it wasn't a Bar Mitzvah... Bats mitzvahs for the for the, um, the 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 girl, yeah. So I remember that. And so those those are celebrations where they kind of come of age. They become spiritually accountable at that age, which is something to keep in mind. Sometimes we kind of wait. We think, well, until you're 18 or 21, you're grown up. But in a spiritual sense, kids really become more spiritually. And kids, listen to this. I mean, when you're you're 12, 13 years of age, you're at the point where you should be spiritually accountable. And that was the age in that culture that they, they would give special intensive training for someone that was going to become a son of the covenant. And so you were encouraged to go to the Passover at least a couple years in advance to prepare for it. So Jesus is there probably been coming all along. And um, after they're finished with the Passover celebration, the family goes home and their big caravan, big family and friends go back to Nazareth and they get a day in and Jesus isn't there. Now, people tend to read into this and they say, well, it doesn't sound like they were very good parents or it doesn't sound like he was a very good son. But by all indications in this passage, Luke sees nothing wrong with that. Um, So we're reading too much into it. We don't have all the details. This is not the kind of passage that you would use to give an example on how to raise kids. Uh, That's not the point of the passage and we don't have enough information to do that. What we do know in this passage is that 
they would travel. Probably the best way to understand it is they just traveled as a big group. Jesus was very well behaved. He's with grandmas and grandpas and aunts and uncles and cousins and friends. And they would travel together. They'd been doing this for years. And at the end of the day, they'd count heads and make sure everybody was there. And when they counted heads, one was missing. And so they were surprised it was Jesus. That wouldn't typically be true of him. And they went back. So they had one day's travel. Then they had one day to travel back. And then the next day they found him. So two and a half days or so that they were separated from him, which would be pretty frightening. And so they go and they, they look to find him. And where do they find him? They actually find him in the temple. Wouldn't that be amazing, finding your kids sitting down and having a theological discussion with great scholars? Um, and that's what's happening. That's how Todd, I mean, they weren't hyper like me and walk around and stuff. They would sit down. That was how they would often teach. So they would sit down. It says they're sitting together and they're teaching him. And as they're teaching Jesus, this is the one time in the scriptures, by the way, where the, the authorities and the, the religious leaders are teaching Jesus. But in a sense, he's teaching them. It appears they're having what they would call sort of a, a madrastic biblical doctrinal discussion here. And they're sitting down, these rabbis, these teachers, and this young man, they're just having discussion with him and they're asking him questions, perhaps the kind of questions that he'll be asked for the next year when he becomes a son of the covenant. And as they begin to ask him these questions, he's answering and he's actually teaching them. They're astounded with his wisdom and with the way he's able to answer. The word in Greek that says that he has understanding is a deeper word than that. It means that his understanding pierced the heart of the matter. It means that he was one endowed with wisdom. Can you imagine this setting, this 12-year-old boy answering these scholars with more wisdom than they had? And everybody was amazed with this situation. So right away, we see that there's something very special about Jesus. And we also see something that really stands out to me here. One is the commitment that his parents had to public worship and ministry. Now, God could have placed Jesus in anybody's life, but he chose a family that he knew in advance was going to be very committed to public ministry, to getting involved with others in ministry. And I think that's instructive for us. I think this is the kind of family that if we had two services, as we've had at different points, if we had two services, they would go to one service to serve and one service to be part of the service. They would be in our small groups. They would be in different relationships with people in the church. They'd be the people staying behind to clean up and make sure everything is taken care of. They would be the people that were really actively involved in church ministry. I think it's instructive that Jesus is in the temple here because in these first two chapters, we're talking about Jesus' childhood. They begin with the prediction of Jesus coming in the temple to Zechariah and this section ends with Jesus in the temple teaching. Isn't that interesting? I think there's something to be said here. Now, I do believe that we can err on the side of being legalistic about going to church. And we make it like, if you don't go to church, you can't know God. I believe there's people that don't go to church that are in relationship with God. I don't think that makes you a Christian. <laughs> And I think we can be legalistic about all the work we do. Some people, I think they get pumped up by all the attention they get because of all the service they do, and that's not healthy either. But I do think our culture's kind of swung in the other direction, and we haven't made church and ministry that important. And I think we're missing 
what God wants for us, what's best for us, because that's the way we grow most in our relationship with God. As a boy, I didn't go to church very often. Um, most of my high school years, I don't think we went except for weddings and funerals at that point. But one thing I understood is I, had, I was really involved in athletics. And I knew that it was important that I not miss practice or a game unless I had an excused absence, unless I was really sick, something really better be wrong. You, you see where I'm going with this? And so then when you apply that to church, I think God understands, you know, there's going to be times when we miss and so forth. But I would say that our commitment to church and to small groups and to ministry should be more than it would be to anything else that we're involved in, including our work and life. Because those other things are peripheral, really. But our involvement in church with church family and ministry, that's all about life. That's what, what's really most important. That's for eternity. And the other things are all going to perish. So I think our culture's kind of shifted on that, and I think it's good to remind ourselves that from the very beginning, God placed Jesus in a family that was really committed to public worship and family in the church. You know, that, that whole kind of thing that we're doing here this morning was really very important to God from the very beginning. And that's how he, he even starts with Jesus in his ministry. Where else but in the temple, in public ministry. Now, the next thing that we see here is interesting is he called the temple his father's house. And verse 47, uh, verse 48 rather, his, um, his parents are astonished and his mother gives him kind of a mild rebuke. And she says, we, you know, I, you really shouldn't have done that. What, what were you doing? What were you thinking? Why, you know, why did you do this? I mean, where, where was your cell phone? You know? And, uh, of course, she didn't have a cell phone yet, but, but um, she's, she's anxious, she says. And anxious means we are distressed. Your dad and I are, are distressed to the point of being really painful about this. We're really upset. Please explain to us what happened. And Jesus is kind of surprised himself, and he says, wouldn't you know what's going on? You, you really should have figured this out, Mom. Remember the angel that came and talked to you and told you I was going to be born? Remember the birth in the manger and the shepherds that came and said that angels had come and talked to them? Remember at the beginning of this chapter, you know, where Simeon and um, Anna prophesied over me and remember how we had to run away from King Herod because he wanted to kill me? You know I'm the Messiah. You know that I'm 12. You know that my time has come for spiritual accountability. It's time for the ministry to begin, in a sense. It's time, Mom. And then he goes on to explain the most important part of this, and that is that he is in his father's house. I'm here to be with my father, which is language that you didn't talk about God in those terms in that way at that time. God was kind of out there, but he, makes, he, he says God is very personal and intimate with me, and that's the example I want for people to see. And it says that his father and mother didn't understand this. Wouldn't that kind of blow your mind? Um, even though they understood he was going to be Messiah, they didn't understand all the ramifications of what Messiah meant. They probably thought he was just going to grow up to be this great leader. And all of a sudden, they're starting to see things that are a little bit different than they understood. But... Not to be too hard on Mary and Joseph, his disciples didn't understand him. 
And if we're honest, we don't understand him because he's so mysterious and miraculous. If you're the kind of person who always has to be able to put everything in a box, you're going to have a lot of trouble with Jesus because he'll make certain that you never understand him. He is too big for you. You'll understand what you need to, but you need to get to the point where you realize that there are things you can't understand because he's God and you're just a human being and you're only able to comprehend so much. That's how great he is. I think that the thrust of this part to me that really stood out was this intimate relationship that he had with his dad. He was daddy's boy. Were you a daddy's boy? Or were you a daddy's girl? Um, Maybe you didn't have a good dad, but in a perfect sense, what would that have been like? I had a great dad. And I, unashamedly, I was daddy's boy. My dad would wrestle with me on the carpet. My dad would play catch with me. He would drive me out to the country. He would tell jokes with me. We would watch ball games together. I would hang out with his buddies. Um, He would come to all my events. And I was always with my dad as a boy. I always wanted to be near him. I was, he was a big guy. I was literally in his shadows all the time because he was my dad. He was my hero. And if I had an issue, I'd come and talk to him. I'd sit him down and say, I, I guess when I was little, I didn't, I, my parents said I used to say, I would like to have a little talk with you. Um, <laughs> I don't remember talking like that, but supposedly I would. But I, I would sit down just talk, I would have my talks with my dad and I'd ask him questions about life. And um, it was, he was really, you know, it was that kind of a relationship. I think God wants us to have that kind of relationship with him. Uh, by comparison, we're like little children that need to crawl up on his knee, as I would do with my dad, and he'd put his big hand on me and say, Son, what do you want? And he'd give me a big hug. And that's, what, that's the kind of relationship that God wants us to have with him. It's that intimate and it's that real. And we can be in his presence all day long. We don't have to be in the temple. It's significant that he's in the temple um, in that Matthew chapter 3 verse 1, or I'm sorry, Malachi chapter 3 verse 1, one of the last prophecies from the Old Testament said that the Messiah would come first to the temple. And I think there's a lot of symbolism here. But even more powerful, I think, for us is the fact that not only can we know that he's God, but that now because of him, we can have this very intimate relationship with our Father, whether we're in the temple or not, wherever we're at. The next thing we see is that he grew up with exceptional qualities. He headed back home, and he was obedient to his parents. Please, children, listen to this. He was obedient to his parents. And I'll tell you what, I had problems with my parents, and I wasn't God. Could you imagine? We all have problems with our parents because they're, they're human beings. They're imperfect. We get upset with them sometimes. Could you imagine Jesus? He had the right to get upset with his parents, wouldn't you say? They must have been messing up all the time. But he was obedient to them. He was respectful to them. What a great example that he was able to do that, um, being who he was. And then um, his mother treasured all these things in her heart. She reflected on them. She contemplated them and thought about them, which I think is sort of a challenge to us to do the same, to think deep and theologically about Jesus. But there's something else here that really grabs me. This is the third time that it tells us in these three, two chapters that Mary treasured these things in her heart. 
And in both, cha- all, both chapters, Mary is like the main person that keeps coming up over and over and over again. Why is that? Here's something else that's very curious. If you read this, and I was studying this from some different scholars, uh, you know, as they've written this, and different people have said, uh, written, looked at this from the original language, and they've pointed out that there's something very fascinating. The first two chapters have a lot of Semitism. Semitism means that the, Jew, the Jewish people were Semitic. That was the kind of language they spoke. And so a lot of the phrases are very Semitic, and there's a lot of a Hebrew to it and a lot of culture to it. Um, but then, after you get in the third chapter, it starts sounding very Greek. Luke was Greek, and he wrote in Greek. Why would that be? I'll tell you why I've become convinced in my own mind, though we aren't absolutely for certain, but I'm convinced in my own mind. It's because Mary was essentially the author of the first two chapters. She was illiterate, but she was in Jerusalem when last we saw her with Jesus, and we know that Luke went to Jerusalem. And I believe that Luke interviewed Mary. And these first two chapters are Mary's account of her son based on Luke's interview. Remember at the beginning, in the first four four verses, Luke says, this was the information that I looked far and wide and I did all the research and I got this information. And so it seems very clear that these are Mary's account of what happened. Very fascinating when we look at it from that perspective um, because Mary is such a central figure here. And then he goes on to tell us what happened with Jesus. And, and it kind of leaves it at this, and then we'll move into his adulthood. But Jesus grew in wisdom and stature in favor with God and men. The key word there is he grew. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus didn't just come as God. He didn't just come out and say, ta-da, here I am, you know. Uh, it wasn't like that. God planted himself as a seed inside of a woman's womb. God was born, therefore, as a baby. He was the son of man because he was born of the human race. He was the son of God because he was still God. He was 100% man. He was 100% God. You're never going to be able to understand that. But that's what the Bible tells us. If you look at all the passages, it's, it's loud and clear. He was both supernaturally. And Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, that when Jesus became a man, he lowered himself and he limited himself. He restricted himself. You see, Jesus could have come and done everything and, and just been, you know, been there right away. And he could have had all wisdom and power and might and knowledge. And then he would have just been God and he would have destroyed everybody. You know, he would have just conquered the world as God. But he came as a human being. And so Jesus actually limited himself to the point where he didn't know things and didn't understand things. And he had to grow in wisdom. Isn't it interesting? In Proverbs, God is equated with wisdom. Wisdom isn't just knowledge. It's the application of what you know. And so here God, in a sense, is wisdom. And yet Jesus didn't have wisdom at first. He had to grow in his wisdom and understanding. He had to grow in his stature. It wasn't just, you know, God is so big and powerful, but he had to grow in physical being. And Jesus, I I don't think Jesus was, you know, we look at Isaiah and the predictions about Jesus 
in um, chapters 51 through 53, and we're told that there was nothing really attractive about him. Nowhere in the New Testament do they say there was anything really attractive about Jesus. By all accounts, he was very average in physical appearance. I don't think he won every foot race. I don't think he won every wrestling match. I don't think he scored at the high, well, he's got the best test scores. Could he have? Yes. But then again, he would come to conquer, not come to save. But he came to save, and he restricted himself in his human form. You say, well, then he wasn't perfect. No, he was perfect. Because he was perfect in restraining himself. But what's more is, that's why he found favor with everybody. Because he was just good. The, the implications here is that he was good, and people liked him. You know where God was perfect, where Jesus was perfect by all accounts? He never sinned. He was completely morally pure. He never did anything wrong. And that was what was most important. What's most important is Jesus was good. Now, he would be great, and he could do everything. What was most important was Jesus was good. You know, we've had this discussion a little bit before. There's a difference between being great and being good. You start thinking about who are the great people, the greatest athletes, the greatest singers, the greatest musicians, the greatest intellectuals, the greatest politicians. Well, that's going to be a hard one. Um, <laughs> but, but you start thinking, who's the greatest? Okay, and all these things. And, and these things just start coming off your tongue, right? But then you go back and say, how many of those people were good? I read an obituary of a guy just today who was supposed to be this great statesman. And I was reading about him. I thought, I didn't know that much about him. This is kind of interesting until you get to the end and you learn about the, um, the affair and the divorce. So let's say he was a great man, but I bet his wife would say he wasn't a good one. You see the difference? What would you rather have, somebody who was great in something as a friend or somebody who was good? Somebody who was loyal, honest, trustworthy. What's more important? I'd rather have the good. And here's the, the news for us. We all want to be great. You know, we have that tendency. I have to admit it myself. You know, a lot of times I, I find myself wanting to be a great pastor or a great speaker. Or, you know, I catch myself doing that all the time, wanting to be, you know, great, being the, most, the, the best at everything, you know, type thing. God doesn't care that you're the best at everything. What he cares most of all is that you're good, that you're honest, that you're pure, that you're loyal that you're dependable. God wants us to be good, first of all. Greatness can come, but, but goodness is more important. And that's the whole idea of the first to be last and last to be first. The good are the people that are going to be honored the most when we get to heaven. So what are you known for? What, what do you identify with most? Uh, Tony Dungy, the great football coach, in his autobiographical um, book, Quiet Strength, uh, he says that after he had committed himself to Christ in his second year playing football with the Pittsburgh Steelers, he became very ill, and he had to stay out of practice, and he thought he was going to lose his job, and he became depressed and frustrated. And his um, teammate, uh, great um, all-pro Donnie Shell, was a committed believer and an older believer and came to him at that time, and he said, you know what your problem is, Tony? He said, um, he said you love football more than you do God. 
you've just committed yourself to God, but God is trying you out right now, and he's going to find out, are you going to be his man or are you going to be football's man? What is it that's most important to you? Tony said he went in and he apologized to God. He got his life right there, and he said he relaxed and he was at peace, and he got better faster, and he went on and he played. God wants us to be identified with him first and with goodness first. More important than anything else that we can achieve in life. Now, let's take a look at how we can apply some of this. What are our signs uh, of growth in him? And I want to just review some of the things we've talked about today. One would be obvious that we would, we would go to church, that we would learn from our rabbis. Those would be our pastors and our church leaders. Join a small group. Study the Bible. Look for, as we've, we've encouraged you, look for uh, 8 to 12 people that are unchurched in your community, among your friends, and befriend them and encourage them and invite them to church and tell them about the Lord. Those are the kinds of things that church people do and we should be doing. Um, deepen your relationship with your Heavenly Father. Talk to Him through prayer all day long. Walk in His shadows of His footsteps. Always be trying to say, what would God want me to do? Uh, enjoy him. When things go right, rejoice. When things go bad, talk to him about it. And make sure you're spending time with him and he's the center of your universe. And then ask yourself, are you a good person? What do people identify with you first? Your job? Um, your, you know, your parenting? You know, your money, your house, or do they think he or she are good people? They're good people, honest, dependable, loyal, trustworthy. They love God. That's a good question for us to ask ourselves. Remember Stan Lee? We started with him today. How many people knew I was talking about Stan Lee? Anybody? Had a couple, couple comic book nerds here. Okay, but... Um, <laughs> Do you know that he liked the Bible? He said when he was a boy, he used to read the Bible because he liked the phraseology of it and, and how it flowed. And so later in 2002 in a Bible survey, he was asked, do you believe in the Bible? And Stan Lee said this. He said, um, well, I'll put it this way. And then he paused and he said, no, I'm not going to try to be clever. I really don't know. I just don't know. I think you can know. I think you can know as we've looked at these passages that all connect and all historical evidence. We have as much evidence really on Jesus as we do on Stan Lee. We're just living with Stan Lee now. But as people look back, they can look at the history of Jesus and say, this man existed. And the things that happened in his life are supernatural. And he made some very clear claims. And people who have followed those claims have had their lives dramatically changed. It's real. And you can know him. And you can know him, and how you get to know him is as clear as A, B, and C. You accept the fact that you are a sinner and you are imperfect. Only he is perfect. You are imperfect, and you can't get to heaven on your own. At the end of the day, we all know that we don't even measure up to our own standards. B, you believe. You believe that he is the unique God-man 
that he died on the cross for your sins and he rose from the grave to conquer sin and death once and for all, as Jesus would, himself would later say, say in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And see that you would choose to follow him and decide that he is going to be your God. And if you're in that position today, I'd encourage you to pray and talk to him and come and talk to us so that we can help counsel you and encourage you um, on your journey that you might come into a real relationship with him. A relationship with God uh, is now possible. We can know him personally because Jesus came, because salvation has come. We join me in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much that salvation has come in the person of Jesus Christ and that through him we can experience life, true life, abundant life, and life eternal. We thank you so much for this example of him as a boy. And um, I, I thank you that it, it gives us yet more evidence of the fact that he was all whom he claimed to be. But thank you also for the instructions that it gives us. And pray that we would... Um, as a result, either come into relationship with you or grow in our relationship with you this day. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.